0: Good morning, Sanctuary. I'm using uh, Psalm 133 from the lectionary today, and I want to focus on the concept of unity. Um, Though few of us would hold to the idea that unity is inconsequential, the average American's view of unity is uh, more of an aggregated unity, like a bunch of solo cups stacked uh, with each other. Um, Aggregate unity means uh, that we are not More, nor are we less than we are alone or together. We're the same. A solo cup is a solo cup when it's stacked with other cups, or when it's a solo cup when it's just by itself. So the idea of aggregate unity is when you come together with other things that are kind of like you, um, but you're not changed by that unity. It's the weakest form of unity. The biblical images of unity are more than that. They're images of family um, or marriage, or being part of the body, where the individual parts, because of the unity of being in a family, or marriage, or building, and that kind of thing, um, the uh, parts become something more as a result of that kind of unity. It recasts the individual. It's not just this uh, sense of individual things that get next to each other that say exactly the same. The church leaders through history claimed that we have been created to have a need for others. And that that need is not an indication of imperfection. Uh, Like if we were really perfect and without sin, we could be alone, right? Live life alone. They actually saw that our need for each other was really the result of the design of God. In Genesis 2.18, that's where the scripture says, the Lord God said, it's not good for humans to be alone. Um, This is odd because up to that point in the text, it was clear that God had seen everything that he had made, and he kept saying, this is good. And then when it's all finished, he said, this is very good. So how does something not good even show up in space that's very good? Uh, It's because this idea of not being good, the need for others, isn't the result of sin or failure on the part of humanity. This is really God designing us to need more than our own personal self. Um, We were created to interact with each other in unity. And it's good uh, to not be alone. It's good to be in relationship. He's not talking about codependency here where you have kind of an excessive emotional or psychological reliance on someone else because you feel like you're out of control of your life. This is saying that All healthy people need more than just themselves. That we were designed by God from the beginning to be in union with other people through things like marriage and family and friendship in places like the church or in society. Being designed for unity and pulling off that unity are really two completely different things. I mean, the story of the first family in Scripture shows how selfishness and blaming and fighting emerge um, right at the dawn of human history. Uh, the first, in, this, in the narrative, the first murder is fratricide, is brother killing brother. And all of this in the biblical narrative hits its zenith at Babel. This is where people are talking, but they don't understand each other. They're talking past each other and they end up all going their separate ways. And In Christian thought, this is a tragedy. The biblical imagery is this is bad because the gospel is actually obsessed with the idea of unity. Whenever something that is intended to be a whole is less than whole, in other words, it gets diffused, Christian thinkers like Augustine believed that to be the actual mark of evil, that evil is most manifest in our loss, of a priority on unity. I mean, it was actually believed that evil was what created division. St. Maximus wrote in the 6th century, quote, the devil, man's tempter from the beginning, had separated him in his will from God and had separated people from each other. So he put that up in contrast to thinkers like Henri de Lubac, who wrote, quote, God is working continually in the world to affect that all should come together in unity. That's really the impulse of what Jesus does. It's the impulse of Pentecost. When people are speaking languages that are different, but they actually understand each other, and they come together. This is the cry of Jesus in John 17, that they may be one, that God would give us his glory to pull off a very difficult thing of moving toward others when sometimes it's easier just to pull away to yourself in selfishness. Um, One of my favorite things about Aristotle was his explanation of friendship. And there are three kinds of friendship, uh, according to Aristotle, namely uh, friendship of utility, then he names the friendship of pleasure, and then finally the friendship of the good or the perfect friendship. Friendship of utility, Um, The key word there is utility. Utility is defined as a state of being useful or beneficial. This is the kind of friendship that's basically transactional, where you have a friendship with someone like a mail carrier (laughs) or a server at one of your favorite restaurants, where your relationship is built on this transaction. So it's a friendship of utility. And it is one that only holds... um, as long as the transactions keep happening. And we always weave in and out of these kinds of friendships all through our lives. Then there are friendships of pleasure. These are unlike friendships of utility where people have a relationship based on some good that they get from the other person. This friendship of pleasure is one where we have uh, the sharing of something that we both love to do. I mean, it can be something as simple as golf or maybe how you volunteer with someone at work or at, or I mean at church or at school Um, bicycling, you know, you both love that kind of thing, or you're with a coworker that you really enjoy doing projects with. These are friendships of pleasure. Again, they come and go. Um, They're wonderful because you're enjoying what you do with the person, but they can stop if uh, the thing that you're sharing together, that you're enjoying stops. The final kind of friendship that um, Aristotle points to is one that lasts. It's the friendship of the good or the perfect friendship. This is a friendship that's based on us appreciating and loving a person for their good, for the character that they carry, for, for who they are, right? And whether you have a transactional exchange or you love to do things together, I mean, it's not the reason that the friendship works. I mean, you certainly can do those things and it's wonderful to have friendships that include utility and friendships that include uh, pleasure. Uh, But in this friendship, you just love that person and they just love you. So these kinds of friendships that are articulated by Aristotle, they're beautiful and they enrich life. Um, But it's this friendship of the good or the perfect that gets closest to what the Bible talks about when it talks about being in a relationship and in unity where there's blessing that is given by God. That's what's described in our our Psalm 133 text. I mean, there's a kind of magic to it. Remember the text says how very good and pleasant it is when kindreds live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard and on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And then he says, for there, the Lord commands the blessing. And the blessing is life, life forevermore. This carries the imagery of the action of God. That this kind of activity, something supernatural is going on. There's this precious oil in this, and there's a blessing of God in this. I think that this kind of relationship is what God's calling us to. It kind of builds off of Aristotle's concept of, uh, of uh, friendship of the good or the perfect friendship. But it's plus. There's something more in it. And I think it's captured in a word that's used in the Greek for the kind of love that God loves with. It's the, it's the Greek word agape. Agape is this word, the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, for the kind of love that God has for us. And biblically, it's this selfless, giving love that is not dependent on the person being loved, but on the one who is doing the loving. It's, a, it's an initiating love, not just a responding love. It's this agape love that God loves the world with in that famous text, for God so loves the world, so love the world, that that word love there is agape. This means God is not looking for a transaction with us in our relationship, even though there's stuff that gets transacted, right? He's he's not looking for us to love the same things that God loves, even though that's wonderful when we partner and have pleasure in the things that are of God. But God at the very foundation of the covenant we have with God, it's not on those things. God just sees value in us and treasures us. We are God's dream come true. And this is the kind of love that God is calling us to enter into when we talk about this business of unity within the context of the community of faith and the way in which we love people around us in the world in which we live. It's a love that's been poured out in, this, in our hearts, according to sacred texts. It's Romans 5.5, 5. it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. I love that, has been poured out. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who God has given to us. When we consider unity, this is the stuff that we are to use between us and other people, agape love. It's it's the glue that ensures perfect friendships. I think every person of faith should love every human being on this planet with agape love. But this should be doubly true with the household of faith. I mean, think of the way the church has uh, spoken of how we are in relationship with one another. It's the imagery of family, um, a building where stones are interconnected to the building that's to be inhabited by the Lord, um, the imagery of the body. I mean, even the Eucharistic meal is said to not only be all wrapped up in this idea of the redemptive work of Jesus and the covenant that God has done with us, but in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes it, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ, and listen to this, And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one life. I mean, somehow, the Eucharist itself speaks of us. It speaks of the miracle of unity. Um, One of the most ancient Eucharistic prayers that we have is one from the Didache, which was probably written around 40, 45 uh, AD or CE, you know, after Jesus has died and rose from the dead. And um, it, it says in that Eucharistic prayer, quote, for as the broken loaf was once scattered over the mountains and then gathered in and became one. So may your church, the prayer goes, be gathered together into your kingdom from the very ends of the earth. Yours, Father, is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. So there's this, there's this imagery of unity in the very Eucharistic meal that we participate. Why? Because there's something really sacred about unity in Christ's church. Disunity was so discouraged that many thought that acts of schism really were marks of one having committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So my encouragement today to all of us is is engage with unity, with everyone, not just people in the church, but, but particularly stay connected to the church. Please don't let your relationships with the church that you're a part of be reduced to friendships of utility, where the relationship you have is just transactional, where you make it about what you get out of church, whether you feel fed, or whether you feel like you you know, had your emotions stirred. And don't even make them about a friendship of pleasure, where your commitment to the church is about whether the church does stuff you like to do, or where you get to use your gifts. I mean, those things are not bad in and of themselves, but I think there has to be more. I mean, the church you attend must be based on some sense of calling inside you, um, a deep celebration of, of, of those that go there, even if they're different than you are. I mean, the very idea of family fits in here, right? I mean, you, you don't get to pick your relatives uh, and, and, and refuse to make the church about you You hope for some utility, obviously, where you feel like there's some transaction that comes that helps you and your kids and your life. I mean, you hope for friendships of pleasure. You hope that there's things that you get to do there that are just fun for you and where you get to serve. But never put those things first. First, you're part of a community of faith by calling and by choice to love, to walk in agape. I mean, I do believe God can call people to churches for a season and that folks really can't leave one community, go to another. But I I think you have to be careful because it's so easy to make these things transactional or about personal preference. Sometimes you're to be part of a church because it's what you need. I mean, God may call you there for that, but oftentimes when you mature a little, you're called to a church because that church needs you. And so it can't just be about transaction or utility, right? Or or about pleasure. It's just sometimes you have to just be there and be faithful for what God's doing. The promise from our text is that when you're committed to unity like this, there's blessing. And it says, for there, the place of unity, the Lord commands his blessing, life forevermore. And that is sweet.